We're in Acts chapter 7. And we learned last week that Stephen was a godly man, a servant. He was a minister in the early church. And Luke tells us that Stephen was one of seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Stephen was full of grace and power, who did, as Luke says, great wonders and signs among the people. I think he might have been gifted by the Holy Spirit in perhaps three gifts. I've just put them up here. Service, working of miracles, and evangelism. And we learned in chapter 6 that Stephen has stirred up a hornet's nest. He's in trouble. He's been accused of blasphemy and insurrection. They've accused him of leading a group who's going to destroy the temple. In Acts chapter 7, verse 1, we read, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? Well, he didn't know it yet, but he's asked for it. He's given Stephen an open door to demonstrate those gifts that God has given him. And so Stephen, Stephen, he skips the prelims, and he doesn't even bother with the accusations or the lies they brought about him. No attempt to clear himself. In fact, he doesn't even mention the charges they've made against him. He sees this as an opportunity to share the gospel. He has the gift of evangelism. Does that remind you of anyone? Coach, it makes me think of you and how God has gifted you all these years. Stephen knows his audience. These are men who have studied the Old Testament scrolls. But they've, reject, they've rejected Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the promised one. Yes, they've rejected Jesus, who is the central theme of Israel's history. You see, the Bible is a book of history, and I like to say it this way. It's truly his story. That's how I like to say it. All of Israel's history points to Jesus. It's his story of love and redemption. And it's this history that gives us an outline for our message this morning. Number one, verses 2 through 8, God's promises to Abraham point to Jesus. Then we'll come to verses 9 through 16. Joseph and the patriarchs in Egypt point to Jesus. Verses 17 through 43, Moses' life points to Jesus. And then the fourth area, verses 44 through 50, God's true tabernacle points to Jesus as well. So Stephen preaches through these 50 verses of introductory historical statements. Then in one verse, two short statements, Stephen drives home his point. I've got it up here on the screen, but you can look down to verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked or stubborn and uncircumcised in heart and ears, 
You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. This statement pierced through to the heart because Luke writes in the verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Well, Stephen recognized a truth that Jesus gave us about the gospel. It's a truth relating to the importance of God's word and the importance of the Old Testament. It was true that God had given Stephen the gift of miracles. Luke told us, chapter 6, verse 8, that Stephen did great wonders and signs among the people. But take a few moments and think with me. In a crowd this large, Stephen could have pointed to someone with an infirmity. Remember, he's got the gift of miracles. Or he could have even thought of an unrevealed secret. And he could have demonstrated his gifts. Remember when Jesus knelt down and wrote something in the sand and the accusers of the woman caught in adultery, they looked at what he had wrote and slowly, silently slipped away. Well, Stephen did do great miracles and wonders, but not today. Instead, Stephen recognized the truth Jesus gave us about the gospel. He gave it in a parable or a story form. It's recorded in Luke 16. I've got it for you up here. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I always love it when we come across some uh, scripture that I've taught in our children's Sunday school because then I've got some pictures to show you and keep you awake a little bit. Verse 19 of Luke. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously. In other words, he lived in luxury every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Well, Jesus continues this parable by telling that both Lazarus and the rich man died. Now, this is not Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, the brother of Mary and Martha. This is Lazarus, the beggar. And it says Lazarus was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The rich man asks for relief from his torment. But Abraham says, I'm sorry, but that's not possible. Then in verse 27, the rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let Lazarus warn them. Then they will not come to this place of terrible suffering. And in the next verses, 29 through 31, Jesus tells us, using the parable, this truth that, G that Stephen knows about that he's using in his defense. In verse 29 of Luke, Abraham said to him, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
And he said, oh no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Well, Jesus finishes this parable with an astonishing thought. Verse 31, But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Through this parable, Jesus is teaching, he's teaching us about our human nature, that desire to be persuaded by miracles. Haven't you ever wondered? We want God to prove himself by actually astounding and bewildering us. So we tell God that we can believe in you if, if you can just prove it by dazzling my mind and my natural senses. Then, then I can believe. I just can't do it by faith. And maybe you're someone who wonders why God doesn't convince more people in these days with signs and wonders. Well, this comes to my first point in the bulletin. Faith isn't an act of the intellect. It's not something that dictates from our feelings. Faith is a response of our will to the convicting, convincing work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said it in John chapter 16. And when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. You see, faith comes before the miracle. Well, let me demonstrate that for you this morning. Before Jesus raised his friend Lazarus, now we're dealing with another Lazarus, before he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said to Martha, chapter 11 of John, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. It was then that Jesus moved Mary and Martha and the crowd of mourning, bereaved spectators to the gravesite. That's when he did his miracle. And here in, J in uh, Acts chapter 7, just as Jesus did with Mary and Martha, Stephen is moving right on past the feelings and the intellect of these men. And the next four points Stephen confronts them with will shoot arrows right through into the heart of the matter. It's the gospel that has to break their will. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that they resist. You see, many of these same leaders had already rejected the greatest miracles of Jesus himself. When their spies, who were at the gravesite with Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, when they reported of Lazarus' resurrection, we learn in John 11, 
When the chief, then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I like how the translation, the message puts it. And the Romans will come and remove what little power and privilege we still have. So Stephen is led by the Holy Spirit not to prove himself or even to prove God with a miracle or sign, but to share God's word with these people. Passages from the Old Testament. Paul later, and it's interesting, Paul, he's named Saul now, he's there listening to all of this. But later, Paul himself said in Romans 10, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So as we find here in Acts chapter 7, Stephen will begin at the beginning with the story of Abraham. With verse 2, if you look at your Bible, and he, this is Stephen speaking, said, Brethren and fathers, listen. Well, let me stop right there. Even this salutation gives us more information and insight into this young man. Stephen is roughly brought forth, he's lied about, he's falsely accused, and yet he begins his response with a sense of good manners. He calls them brethren. They're his brethren in the flesh. He calls the older men fathers. He's a younger man and shows them this respect. But Stephen is very serious about his objective as he begins the story about Abraham. As we read through this chapter this morning, though, following Stephen's response, I'm going to skip through some verses and just hit the high points as we cover these 60 verses. So stay with me as we skip along. Stephen's first point, then, is God's promises to Abraham point to Jesus. The last part of verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, and he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the hand of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran, and from there when his father was dead, he moved him to his land in which he now dwelt, and God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set a foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. This land is for you and for your descendants. So Abraham, he left his family and his friends for a land given to his descendants while he and his barren wife were still childless. So Abraham is not only the father of the Jews, he's their example. The Spirit of God had spoken to Abraham. It told him to look by faith for a land for his descendants. Abraham, by faith, obeyed God 
and obeyed his command before Isaac was born. But was Abraham perfect? (laughs) Hardly. But faith overcame his fears and his intellect. His intellect told him, Sarah has been barren all these years, and she's too old now anyway. And his fears told him and persisted with him, it will never happen if we don't help. Here, sleep with Hagar, my servant. Let's go down to verse 8. Then he, that's God, gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. You see, Abraham believed God. Comes to my second point in the bulletin. Stephen is saying, Abraham's true children will follow in his footsteps of faith. That applied to those men, and it applies to us as well. This brings us to Stephen's second point. Joseph and the patriarchs in Egypt point to Jesus. You see, Joseph was the victim of his brothers, the patriarchs. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Well, these Jewish leaders were acting exactly like the patriarchs who rejected God's plan of deliverance through Joseph. Even though God had revealed this plan in Joseph's dreams, I've got a picture of that up here. Do you remember what those dreams were? They were with the sheafs of grain and the stars and the moon bowing down to Joseph. And despite the hatred and rejection of his brothers, Joseph had faith, even in these the worst of days, times of envy and hatred, rejection, slavery, deceit, and prison. Verse 11, Now a famine of great trouble came over him, came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. Well, these Jewish leaders, they know this story. Jacob sends all of his sons down to Egypt to get grain, except Benjamin. Joseph, as we'll learn in a minute, disguised himself and then tested his brothers before he sent for Benjamin and then Jacob and the rest of the family. Verse 13. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to the patriarch. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his, tw- all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. Well, Stephen is saying the patriarchs were examples of sin and rejection and resisting God's plan. 
and Stephen's accusers, they're beginning to catch on, and you can almost see them begin to bristle a little bit. Joseph was an example of faith, faith in the promises of God. But Joseph was also a picture of Jesus, a savior for his family, his people. I like how John Corson, one of our uh, pastor friends, points out, Joseph is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ. Joseph's brothers were moved with envy. Well, Pilate knew that for envy, Matthew will say in chapter 27, they delivered Jesus unto him. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30. Joseph was punished for sins he did not commit. Jesus was punished for your sins and mine. Joseph was cast into prison. And Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus descended into the prison of the earth. And then as Joseph was miraculously freed from prison, Jesus miraculously arose from the grave. He has risen. Oh, okay. That woke a couple of you up. I'm glad for that. So Stephen then is going to make his third point. He says, Moses' life points to Jesus. So Stephen is continuing his theme of faith. Irrational faith and senseless rejection as he turns to the story of the life of Moses. Verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and, his, and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Isn't this interesting? When destruction and death was imminent, kill all the baby boys. That way the, we'll still have servants, but we won't have a, an enemy the Pharaoh was saying. But when death was imminent, it was a mother's faith that saved the entire nation. And this is precisely Stephen's point. You see, this is a fill in the blanks, God requires our faith to look beyond the obvious. Just as Abraham and Joseph had already demonstrated, God's deliverance requires puzzling Peculiar belief. Faith in the surprising and the unexpected. That which disrupts the status quo. Do you have that kind of faith? I want to. Maybe I have had a time or two, but certainly not often enough. Well, Stephen gives a fitting example of this very idea of the irrational, unexpected workings of God. He says in verse 23, 
Now when he, that's Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. I've got another picture for you up here. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he, but he who did his, bro, his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? <laughs> the rumor mill was working. He, he was clear over in one area of, of the sand dunes, and others found out about the death of the Egyptian. I think probably they go, oh boy, now we're in trouble. They'll kill all of us looking for whoever did that. Well, 40 years spent in luxury and privilege, Moses has this unexpected urge to associate with his Hebrew slaves. And out of the blue, Moses finds himself defending this poor, wretched slave, expecting at least gratitude, if not admiration. But as we read in verse 28, do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? You see, this becomes the very act that unexpectedly drives Moses out of the palace and into the wilderness. Verse 29. Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Stephen is saying to these Jewish leaders, not only are God's ways unexpected, but God's servants have always been rejected by those unwilling to believe. Belief is an act of the will. But man's sin has never stopped God from offering mercy and grace. Stephen recites God's message to Moses. Go down to verse 34 with me. God is speaking. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Well, in those verses, 40 years have elapsed with Moses in this wilderness. And now God appears to him again. Stephen is saying in verse 35, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Stephen again makes his point to these Jewish leaders. Just as the nation in slavery rejected Moses, their deliverer, you have rejected Jesus. So Stephen continues and he says in verse 37, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God 
will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Then Stephen says in verse 39, talking about Moses, go down there with me, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Well, they finally followed him, but when they get to Mount Sinai and Moses is sent up to the top of the mountain where there's thunderings and lightning and and all of this going on, and uh, we think approximately three million people are down at the foot of the mountain, and it says that Moses is gone for 40 days. And this group of people reject him. In their hearts, they want to return back to Egypt. Well, we know this part of the story. Aaron is convinced that a golden calf will appease the people until Moses gets back down from the mountain. Aaron might be thinking, it's really Moses' fault anyway. Forty days is just too long for these poor frightened people to wait. So in verse 40, the people are saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He's been gone. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. But just as Moses was rejected, these men, Stephen's accusers, have also rejected the prophet that Moses had spoken of. They've rejected Jesus, the Messiah. Skip down to verse 44 with me. To the last example Stephen gives. God's true tabernacle pointed to Jesus. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. I've got a picture of that up here. As he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. It was a special tent that they could take with them through their 40 years of wilderness journey. It's made in the likeness of a pattern of God's throne in heaven. See, the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 8, There is a sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being, the true tabernacle. Down here there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve a sanctuary or tabernacle that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. You see, in the tabernacle... There are two spaces named the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. The tabernacle was the dwelling place for God's presence among his chosen people. His presence literally dwelt on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And this tabernacle is another sore spot in the memories of these people. God had come to earth to dwell with his people, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire. By night. Yet the people were forced 
to wander the wilderness for 40 years because of, guess what? Unbelief. God has chosen to come to earth again, Stephen says, in the person of the Son. God has come to earth again in the person of Jesus. And here they are again, trapped in their unbelief. Go down to verse 48. Stephen says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples or tabernacles made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Well, Stephen is referring to Isaiah the prophet, chapter 66. And these Jews, they thought it then and they think it now. They thought that because they had their tabernacle and now their temple, that they were safe from harm and that God had to bless them. And all the prophets warned them that the temple would not assure them of God's blessing if their hearts were not right with God. You see, Stephen, now, he's literally standing in the shadow of the temple, and he's saying to them, the temple won't save you. The old religion won't save you. Now, this is absolutely true for these angry men. It's true for Israel. It's true for all of mankind, including us here today. You see, religion can't save anyone. The church can't save anyone. Only faith in Jesus provides forgiveness and righteousness required for heaven. Stephen is saying, just like Abraham, you have to move on and live by faith. Just like the patriarchs and the rejection of Joseph, don't let your envy and your pride cause you to continue re- continue to reject the truth. And just like Israel with Moses and the prophets, don't continue to reject the prophet Jesus. I think Stephen fears it might be too late. He brings his accusation in verse 51. He turns up the heat. And we read this before, but read it again now as we come to it. You stiff-necked, stubborn, and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So did you. So do you. Stephen calls the Jews uncircumcised in heart and ears. In other words, they were insensitive. They were deaf to God. He calls them stiff-necked or unbending, inflexible. The first part of verse 52, he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Well, the answer is none. Every time God raised up a prophet, the nation tried to put him down. Once they tried to stone Moses. They sought to murder Jeremiah. With Jeremiah, on several occasions, they had thrown him into prison. And the Jews killed the prophet Zechariah in the temple. They hated the prophets while they were still alive. Yet after they were gone, 
These men revered them as wonderful men of God. They were a nation full of hypocrites. So Stephen is going to give them both barrels. He continues in verse 52. They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Now the just one, that's a term for the name of the Messiah. Stephen is saying that the Jews killed the prophets of old who had foretold of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And then as he finishes verse 52, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Well, was it too late? When the prophet Jesus, the Christ, appeared, promised by Moses in verse 37, they rejected his words and crucified him. These men have joined this old crowd of betrayers and murderers. You have become the betrayers. Verse 53. You have become the betrayers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. They, those past and present, knew the truth, but they're too stubborn to obey or keep it. And how did this crowd standing in the temple that day respond to Stephen's sermon? Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They're snarling at him. They're like pit bulls in clerical robes. As these threatening men began to encircle him, Stephen looked up, and heaven opened to him. Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, now this is an interesting statement that he says to these people. First off, Jesus Jesus in the New Testament is usually seen sitting at the right hand of God. Uh, Colossians 3 Seek these things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. But here he's standing. And many people think he's standing to receive Stephen into his presence. And then Dr. Walverd, one of my favorite teachers, points out to us the significance of Stephen's statement to these Jewish leaders. He says, Acts 5, uh, 7, 56 is a climactic, verse in this chapter for chapter for several reasons first it repeats the claim Christ made at his trial before the high priests in mark chapter 14 jesus said i am the christ he's talking to pilate and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven walverd says secondly the term Son of Man is filled with significance. This expression also shows that Jesus is the Messiah. We find this in the book of Daniel. And third, 
It combines two great messianic passages, the one in Daniel and one in Psalms. I've got them up here. Daniel 7, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the psalmist writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus gives people access to God by means other than the temple and its priests. As much as anything else that Stephen has said, this further infuriates these men. And when I read verse 57, I know we're at the really serious part, but I have to almost laugh. It's, it's like we're going to be shown in cartoon form what their reaction is. R- read it with me. I- I'm sorry, I- I'm not sure I should say it this way, but then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. I mean, can't you just see that on the as a cartoon with these? They're snarling. They're like pit bulls in their uniforms and and all. But they cast him out of the city, and they stone him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Remember back in Acts chapter 6, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia. They're disputing with Stephen. Saul, Paul later we know, was born and raised in Tarsus. I've got this map here. It's a major city in the province of Cilicia, or Cilicia, where these men were from. Probably the synagogue he was raised in. And then it says, They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, he's asleep. Why? Because his body is sleeping. His soul is in heaven with Jesus. These men were resisting the inner voice of the Holy Spirit as they violently attacked God's messenger. Maybe God is speaking to you this morning through His Word. Don't resist what the Spirit of God is teaching you. Have you accepted God's gift of eternal life? Have you accepted this historical living Jesus? This could change your eternity for you. Are you waiting for God to prove himself to you? Faith is simply believing what God's Spirit is telling you in your heart and mind right now. Is the Lord speaking to you about your faith as he has me all this week about the importance of his word? Respond to him this morning. Let's bow together in prayer.
Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Leaving heaven itself to become our kinsman redeemer. That your life would pay the penalty of our sins. Lord, thank you for the miracle of redemption as we bow to you this morning. Touch the hearts of those who are here by your Spirit. Draw them to yourself. Challenge their hearts to believe in you or even, Lord, that their faith would grow in their response to you. We pray this in Jesus, your precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me while we do one worship song. Uh, Elders will come up. If God is speaking to you about anything in your heart and life, come up and share this with one of our elders this morning. Miss, we invite you to come up and pray with one of us up here. If you haven't asked Jesus into your heart and life before, this is a great time to recognize that he's, he's the Jesus of history. He's the Messiah. He wants to be Lord, Savior in your life. We pray for you as you live by faith. It's tough in these days and it's getting tougher. Ask the Lord to just bring that faith stronger and stronger for you as as you need it. When people attack you like they did, Stephen, do what he did. Look up and be delivered. We love you. We're glad you're here. Don't forget, next Sunday is our anniversary birthday. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.